Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Welcome to another bonus edition of The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. As I mentioned the last three Tuesdays, I'm making available to listeners of The Thriller Zone the audiobook version of my thriller, The Poser, starring rookie detective Pat Norelli. And this is it. So without waiting any longer, I present the conclusion of The Poser. Chapter 76, Deep Dive. Back at the house, Stuart and I continued to decipher the madness while dipping the tacos in mole sauce. I opened another two beers and began laying everything out on the coffee table, handing Stuart sticky notes I had accumulated. I've been wanting to break this bad boy in for some time, and now is the perfect time to do it. Okay, what else you got? Kicking off my shoes, I took a sip of beer and slid him two police reports concerning Darius's parents. As he attached them to the board, I removed my next file and joined him, gesturing for him to take a seat. Okay, newsflash. I just learned my doctor had an ex-wife. Well, you've been wondering about that. Right, because it just didn't seem like a guy this smart, this handsome, this educated, would not have a wife, I said, flipping through my papers. Claire Bernard was 31. She had just launched the practice he runs today. They were together for two years, and in fact, they were celebrating their anniversary when he asked her to marry him. Okay, so... Actually, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me let me back up. They were together for two years, and she was pregnant. However, she had a stillbirth right around their anniversary. And according to the police report, she had been suffering depression because of the miscarriage and was under a doctor's care. So, on the night of her 31st birthday, they had gone out to dinner, then returned home. He proceeded to work in his library while she drove out for ice cream. On the way back from the store, she stopped at the Colorado Street Bridge there in Pasadena, your hometown. Yes, which is how I was able to get one layer deeper, I winked. It was sometime around 11.30 when she jumped off the bridge. What? Fortunately, a man, Robert uh, Pearson, was walking his dog about a block from where she had landed. He heard a thud moments later, found her. Shit's tragic. Uh, all right, now here's where the pieces. I need your help. Okay, shoot. Two witnesses were quoted as saying they saw a pleasant couple celebrating at the Arroyo Chop House when an argument broke out. There was some shouting by the man, followed by the woman crying. Shortly thereafter, they left. This was a little after nine. Two and a half hours later, they're home and he's working, said the officers who received the call. According to officers Newcomb and McCoy, Tercel reported that sometime around 11, she leaves saying she's going out for ice cream. Um, hey, just for curiosity, let me pull up a map on my laptop and connect it to the overhead. Okay, there's the chop house, see, on South Arroyo Parkway, right uh, in the heart of Pasadena. Copy that. And here is the Colorado Street Bridge. Thing is, they live well north of Pasadena in the quiet and well-to-do hood of Altadena. Now, that's at least 20 minutes away in the opposite direction of the Colorado Street Bridge. Stuart's eyebrows raised before dropping into a deep frown. What you talking about, Willis? (laughs) 
Exactly. So why do they have dinner in downtown, drive north 20 or so, then she drives back south only to... Right. When there are no less than a dozen ice cream shops, grocery stores, neighborhood markets, and such within blocks of your house. Um, why that bridge? And why jump? Well, the bridge is famous for jumpers. Why it's called Suicide Bridge, sadly. And to your point, no idea. Freaking violent way to go, if you ask me. All right, wait, wait, wait. Take me back to the police report. He said, reaching for my notes. All right, let's see. Is there any report of evidence bruising to her? Well, that would be pretty tough to find droppings, what, 150 feet? Uh, 15 stories. Yeah, no one survives that. Mm, autopsy report? Not pretty. Uh, between her face, hands, and you'd never see prior damage. Okay, so they went to dinner, got into a fight. Don't know why. Not important. They go home. He works late. She heads out for dessert. She never came home. Funerals a few days later. He goes back to work. Life returns to normal, whatever that is. Case, open and shut. Uh, okay. That is or rather was, the weakest link in my chain so far, until I started looking at the dates. Like? I placed a grid on the board with everything in blocks and cross-referencing dates. <sighs> Follow along. Father died when Darius was 10. It's 1986. Mother died when Darius was 15. Five years later. It's 1991. Right. Fast forward to 2011. Darius now, 35, when his 31-year-old wife dies. We looked at one another. Go on. Okay, so I'm talking to Darius in a recent appointment, and for whatever reason, he opens up to me something, well, he rarely does, and proceeds to tell me all about a girl in his psych class at SDSU. As part of their work, they're studying suicide. And? And in their third semester together? No. No. Uh, yes. What? They're romantically involved, at least that's what I surmised from their yearbook, along with a short conversation I had with their psych professor. Let's see, Dr. Jack Carr said that they spent all their time together, which included classes, labs, internships, and thesis papers, always together and at the same facilities. Get this, even for target practice. His eyebrow shot up. Wait a minute, you mean he mimes putting a gun to his head? I nod. She killed herself three weeks before graduation. What the? Wait, what, what year is it? 1996. Darius was 20. Stuart frowned. All right, I'll come back to this, but let me jump ahead a second. It'll help later. You hang with me, all right? He rubbed his hands together like they were cold. Mm, rocket, baby. Knowing his undergrad was in clinical psych, I asked where he went to grad school. Where? USFCA, a really nice San Francisco private school. Copy that. So there he is studying mental health counseling in San Francisco, far away from San Diego or Los Angeles, where he's been since grad school. Besides Pasadena. But yeah, it's, uh, never mind. Continue. Okay, so thesis work is intense, hours are long, but you still have to have a social life, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's dating this gal, uh, Stephanie Oliver. Beautiful. I've seen pictures. Smart. Her grades were amazing. And maybe just a wee, I pinched my fingers together, bit cray-cray. But one day, she, now follow me here, no fucking way. Yes, way. His head whipped toward the board. Wait a minute. By hanging herself? What year? Okay, 2006, he's 30 now. He slapped his hands together. Oh, fuck. Every five years. And that is when the coincidences start to mess with my head. 
Remember I said a second ago, remind me to come back? Yeah. So back to 1996 and Rebecca Cheswick. Oh, stop one second. I got to pee like a racehorse. Uh, Do it. While he went to the bathroom, I realized my phone had been silenced for a better part of the day. So I checked messages and see that there were three calls and two texts. One call looked like it was from the office. One was from Shay and one was from Sharon Gladstone. There are two texts. One from Shay said she just left me a message and the other from Dr. Tercel. I replayed the first phone message from yesterday. Hi, Detective Norelli. It's uh, Sharon Gladstone from the Getty. I, uh, I wanted to speak with you about something that, I don't know, could, could be helpful. Um, I'm sorry. I, I know I sound kind of scattered, but okay, look, this is crazy. I'll try you again tomorrow. Perhaps we could meet up for a coffee or even a lunch here at the Getty. You'd be my guest. Okay, um, gotta go. Thanks. I considered calling her now, but looking at my watch, decided it was too late and made a note to call her first thing. I listened for the next message. It was Shay. I smiled, hearing her voice. Hi, Mama Bear. It's your little cub. Hope you're doing well. I'm good. Life is good. All is well. Just wanted to call and say, you know, I love you. And having a great time here with Dad, looking into the school stuff and such. Anyway, I'm babbling. I'll try you later. Or you can call me tomorrow. Not urgent. Okay? I love you. I was still smiling when I saw Stuart stopping to kiss his little girl and Janine outside. She and I exchanged waves as I pushed play to hear a message from McLeod. Uh, Detective Norelli? Yep, McLeod here. I uh, have some stuff you may want to see, and uh, it's cool. It's important. I can be reached. Hell, you know how to reach me. Just call me when you can. Cool. Thanks. Waiting for Stuart to return, I ended playback and read the last text. It was from Tercel. Thanks for shifting. I owe you. Chapter 77 Handiwork. Darius stood across the room, admiring his handiwork. Bobby sat on his king-size bed, completely naked and strapped to the massive headboard. At the foot of the bed was an elaborate setup that included Bobby's favorite compound bow, anchored in a repair stand. The bow was loaded with an oversized arrow, its razor tip and fiberglass shaft pointed directly at his heart. Because of the way Bobby was strapped to the bed, there was no way he could move from the path of the oncoming arrow. Darius had taken great care in orchestrating the setup. The arrow was placed in the rest where it gently yet firmly held a poisoned arrow until ready to launch, something he just recently learned. The poison tip was only a precautionary backup plan. That way, in the off chance the trajectory wasn't exactly straight on, the arrow had enough poison to drop a buffalo. The pull string was attached to a reverse pulley, whereby the pull was dependent upon the strength, or in this case, the fatigue of a man's grip. Given the torque was between 75 and 100 pounds pull, it was likely the person's strength would give out long before the core strength, meaning, Once Bobby reached fatigue, his grip would quit. The less tension, the quicker the release. Darius had given Bobby just enough fentanyl to put him out. He also had an ammonia capsule to wake him. Knowing the lethargy his muscles would experience because of the drugs and scotch, his hand would likely give out more quickly than usual. While taking photos, Darius hummed, Straight to the heart, and you're to blame. You give love a bad name. 
When photos were done, he snapped a capsule and awakened the sleeping giant. Here, hold this, Darius said, placing the line to the rig in Bobby's hand. He was confident Bobby would instinctively take it, which he did. Feeling the tension, he would instantly respond, just as expected. The look of horror on Bobby's face was worth the price of admission. Hey, buddy. How are you feeling? Bobby was groggy, but had enough presence of mind to hold tight and keep still. He looked from Darius to his hand. Well, my guess is you'll last, I don't know, five, maybe ten minutes, more or less. I would have saved you the trouble and me the time, but it seemed like a good idea to let you, you know, take yourself out. Or as the case will be, let Sharon take you out. Confused and terrified, Bobby stared, but was aware enough to hate his opponent. I'd say by that expression, you're wondering, what does my pal Darius mean Sharon taking me out? But she's not here. <laughs> but she will be. You are a sick motherfucker. His hand quivered. His eyes widened. Oh, your strength may not be as strong as expected. He pulled a chair to the foot of the bed. Guess you won't be needing this after all. He chuckled, shaking the GoPro in the air. Pushing record, he set it on a nearby nightstand, then took a seat. Yeah, seems silly going through all these motions, but I needed you to buy the whole thing. Bobby's breathing was heavy, but he didn't budge. Not an inch. Yeah, the look on your face... <laughs> Did Darius really intend to give me that video? Yeah, no. How about this? Did my pal Darius really hypnotize me all those times in his office? <laughs> yes. And you know what? You are, or rather, soon to be were, one of my very best students. Oh, yes. You always went under quickly, always followed directions precisely, and never remembered a thing. The only one better than you is my girl, Angie. Now there's a straight-A student. You son of a bitch! You will burn for this. I don't think so. As you can imagine, knowing my attention to detail, I've thought of pretty much everything. You fucking fuck! He swallowed hard, making his hand shake. Watching the compound bow shimmy, he caught himself. Hmm. <laughs> you may want to save your energy, Bobby. Were you expecting someone, Bobby? Of course not, you fucking maniac! Bobby spat, trying with all his might to control himself and to remain steady. As Darius left for the other room, Bobby stared and sweated. After a moment, he heard a familiar woman's voice. His eyes darted from the compound bow to the doorway as sweat streamed down his face. Well, 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 look who's paying us a surprise visit, Bobby, an old friend of yours, Darius said, entering the room and holding a woman's hand. Her body was just out of view. Such good timing. Just then, hello, Bobby. Hello. Oh, oh, hello, Bobby. Holy sh. Shit. Darius clapped. Gathering herself, she got closer and raised a pair of handcuffs in the air. Enjoying Bobby's confusing stare, she purred, Remember these? The fuck? What, what the f- I thought, 
I thought you were... Yeah, uh-huh. Not quite, but you came pretty fucking close, she shouted, lunging toward the bed, causing him to nearly lose his grip. Darius quickly stepped in. Hold on, whoa, 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 whoa. Elizabeth, Bobby and I were just in the middle of, how shall I say, a very delicate conversation. Perhaps you would like to watch? Well, my, 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 this is quite the setup you have here, Bobby. Looking at his private seems to have changed your perspective, yes? You fucking bitch. I should have held on longer. Made sure I finished the fucking job. Darius crossed the room and pulled out a chair for her. May I offer you a ringside seat? Why, thank you. If you and I were on equal ground, Tercel, I'd crush you with my bare hands. But that's not going to happen, now is it, Bobby? His hand trembled. The bow shook. His eyes widened. The string wobbled. His breathing increased. The sweat flowed. Any last words, Bobby? Yeah. Why? You're an insane fucking nut job. His voice quivered, eyes shifting rapidly back and forth between the bow and his opponent. Darius glanced back at Elizabeth, who blew Bobby a kiss. Sweat ran into Bobby's eyes. After several beats, he growled, You're a greedy prick, Tercel. Really? Seems like you're the greedy one, Bobby. You had Meredith, but I was the one who really wanted her. You did nothing but mistreat her, where I gave her nothing but kindness. In my office and her bedroom. He stopped to watch Bobby absorb the truth. But you had to beat her to get your way. And all she wanted was to love you. Then you got her pregnant. <laughs> oh, and you didn't even know it was yours. <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> Bobby's hand trembled as sweat drooled from his forehead into his eyes. Frankly... I think it was mine. Or was it Gray's? Or perhaps Tommy's? He smirked, turning to Elizabeth. Hell, so many were tapping that fountain of youth. It was hard to know. The color was rapidly draining from Bobby's face. But no, I wanted her all to myself. More than Sharon. Much more. More than anyone. And you, you ignorant Neanderthal, had her right in the palm of your hand. He said, looking at Bobby's hand, now white with fatigue. Bobby tried to steady himself. So tell me, Bobby, how do you see this movie ending? You're the director, after all. Bobby's eyes bugged. His hand trembled as his grip loosened. Just then, the rig shook as the bow released. <laughs> Launching at 300 feet per second, the arrow fully penetrated Bobby's heart, pinning him into the headboard. Holy shit! Elizabeth shrieked. Seconds later, Bobby's last breath escaped and his head dropped. And that's a wrap. <laughs> Darius laughed, spinning toward Elizabeth, whose face was a mixture of terror and passion. That was fucking intense. And so was the video of you two. I saw it on his phone. Oh, you liked just what the doctor ordered, he said, bouncing his eyebrows. She circled her lips with her tongue. Now, how about you and I pick up where you and the late Mr. Shapiro left off? Chapter 78 Dark Underbelly 
Stuart returned and, opening another beer, looked at me sideways. You okay? Yeah, just got some messages that, uh, well, I'll share in a second, but I want to wrap this up, I said, still distracted from the last text. He waved for me to continue and said, Okay, so we were talking about Rebecca Cheswick, the one who shot herself? Right, 1996. The autopsy said she died from a gunshot wound to the head. Temple, to be specific. She had rented a guest house apartment from an elderly couple over the garage. The gun was found in the front seat of her car, in the garage, exactly like Darius's father. Exactly. Now, let's jump back to the hanging and the girl he was dating. Uh, Stephanie Oliver. Exactly. So in the report, she was found hanging from a pipe in the basement of her home. The autopsy said she was choked. Mm, that makes sense. Wait, wait, wait. How did you... I did an internship with a local office while the ex was in school. I uh, made friends with a wacky cat by the name of Seth. Worked in the morgue. Anyway, we traded favors. Professional, of course. Anyway, I spent a few hours with him the other day catching up and asking plenty of questions. Cocking his head to the side, Stuart scratched his two-day growth. Okay, it was a hanging, but I thought you said she was choked. Right, except her trachea and voice box were not crushed, as would be the case in a hanging, especially given the distance she dropped along with her weight. Uh, let's say she was a big-boned girl. So? So she could have been choked even accidentally, then placed in that noose. To look like a suicide. Bingo! Stewart returned to the grid. Okay, for the sake of argument, let's say that there's a, let's, let's call it a five-year pattern. I see a couple potential holes, I think. True, but I also haven't finished. Okay, well then how about me just shutting the fuck up? <laughs> I crossed the room to snag a bottle of water from the fridge and downed it. This is huge, by the way, Pat. Nice work. I should mention that while it's, as you put it, nice work, it doesn't actually prove anything, factually. But the patterns... That's where the magic lies. Well, show me the magic. All right. Everything up until his graduate work can be explained. Mostly. In one way or the other. Anyway, the early deaths all made sense, and the later deaths took place outside L.A. Well, except the almost wife. Uh, give me a minute. He said, eyeballing his laptop, the map, and his notes. Okay. Uh, locked and loaded. Go. Good. Uh, because here comes the last link I have. It's 2016, and it's been five years since his wife died. His practice is thriving, and I'm going to guess time to start dating again. So, who would a handsome, super successful, 40-ish-year-old bachelor with a thriving practice want to date? Uh, me? Supermodel. Ding, ding! That would be the super tall, super beautiful, supermodel Natasha Teresa Campbell. She's two-thirds his age and in the talk of the town. Wait, wait, wait. I know her. Uh, wasn't that about the time everyone wanted to go by one name, but she had three? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Plus, had a trifecta of bad habits. Really? Yep. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm, the American dream. Sex, I said, holding up a single finger, as in appeared in several films, thanks to our pal Tommy Showalter. Copy that. Drugs, as in heroin and coke. Mm, shit. And rock and roll, as in spreading it wide for many A-list talents. Oh, boy. And her connection to our doctor? They dated, big surprise, but only after he treated her for depression. It didn't last, though, as she was seeing several guys at the same time. That was the rumor anyway. And her demise. Wait, I'm assuming OD found in a Venice Beach hostel. Oh, no. Classy way to go. You bet. Hard to pin this one, again, because of multiple partners and... I stopped to hand him the police report. 
Dr. Tercell was on a flight to Vegas, and around the time she was found by the maid, he was speaking at a conference the next morning. Timeline's close, you make the call. Hot damn, girl. And look, he said, pointing to the overhead grid. Five, every five years, like clockwork, except what, 2006? Yeah, but it felt so much more... Norelli, are you kidding me? This is solid detective work. I'm proud. And Nelson's got to be thrilled. I said nothing, pulling all the paperwork together. Pat, what are you not saying? Thank you for your being proud. Why haven't you told the boss? I needed your input, your advice, and your sign-off. Whoa, 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 girl. You have my input. My advice is to push forward. Time's of the essence, especially with Bobby released on bail. As for signing off, girl, I will be there front and center. In fact, Janine doesn't know it yet, but I'm coming back tomorrow. It looks No, Stuart, you have to... No, you wait. I don't have to do anything except be sure we nail Bobby's ass to the wall. Look, we're partners, and we have a job to do. Janine understands that. Seriously, I am back tomorrow, period. And I'm talking to the captain about pulling four tens. Same amount of work, more time with my girls. Smiling, I gave him a hug. And in the meantime, I said, brushing away a tear, first thing tomorrow, I will get extra coverage for Shapiro and Gladstone. They're the last pieces of the puzzle that will put this whole thing together. Chapter 79. Bloodbath. Angie had patiently waited in her car, sipping a bottle of water and listening to the sounds of the evening. It had taken longer than expected, but shorter than anticipated. When all but one of the lights had gone out, she sent a text to Darius. The deal is signed, just waiting for approval. Darius was weaving through one of many prestigious neighborhoods, keeping as low a profile as possible. When his phone pinged, he slowed to a curb, read it, and replied, Thank you. Give me ten. Darius appreciated his friend for her following direction so well. In less than 15, he was pulling up to Sharon's house, spotted Angie's car, and parked in the driveway. Hello, Angie. Good to see you. How are you feeling? I'm good, and it's nice to see you too, Dr. Tercell. And how is our friend Sharon? Besides ecstatic with the incredible offer, she was all but passed out when I said goodnight. We had several glasses of wine, and she was going to soak in the tub before heading to bed. Good, 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 Angie. Thank you so much for taking care of this. As I said, my clients, actually friends in Palm Springs, saw this house when they were in town and just had to have it. Well, I know one thing. They are going to love it. Look, you've had a long day. Why don't you head on home and get some rest? There will be a very handsome commission for you very soon. Why, thank you, and good idea. I am tired. What are you going to do? I'm just going to peek my head in and say hello, if she's not asleep already. Then me? Oh, I'm heading home. It's been a long day for me as well. Now you get some rest, and we'll have a session in a couple of days. As Angie started the car, Darius put his hand on the door. Oh, before you go, do you have that contract? Oh, <laughs> Mama, yes, of course. <laughs> Reaching to the seat beside her, she handed it to him. Almost forgot. Oh, I am tired. He slid it into his jacket and softly patted her arm. Thank you again, Angie. You're a good friend. Now, don't forget to call my phone the moment you get home. I would not be able to sleep tonight if I didn't hear your voice telling me you are home safe and sound. Promise? Of course, she smiled and pulled away. Before long, she would be sound asleep with no recollection of her whereabouts between their last call and crawling into bed. 
Quietly, Darius took a case from his trunk and approached the house, pausing to listen for a noise. Walking around back, knowing Sharon never locked the sliding door to the sunroom, he gently slid it open. Sharon, are you home? Nothing. Inside, he passed through the kitchen, the dining room, and entered the master bedroom suite, where he found Sharon asleep in the tub. Making sure she was out, he reached over and turned on the warm water. Next, he opened the case and removed Bobby's compound bow and placed her left hand on the bow, making sure to leave good prints. As the water neared the top, he turned it off and replaced the bow in its case. Next, he rolled up one sleeve, then reached into his jacket and removed a straight razor. He first sliced through a femoral artery in one thigh, then the other. Next, he lifted one wrist and sliced the vein vertically, being sure to keep the spurting blood from spraying anywhere except inside the tub. Placing her arm in the warm bath, he did the same procedure for the other arm. Drying off his arm with a towel, then rolling down his sleeve, he looked around to make sure he hadn't touched anything but the faucet, which he wiped down. Then, retrieving his smartphone, he took several well-framed shots. And finally, he removed a letter from his jacket, placed it on the nightstand in the bedroom, and quietly left. Chapter 80 Night-night. Heading home and picturing a long, hot soak, I pulled out my phone and sent a voice text to Shay. Hey, baby girl, been a long day, about to crash. If you need me, I've got 20 free, or we can talk over coffee in the morning. Love you. The next voice text was for McLeod. Hey, got your message. I'm toast. Let's chat at 8 a.m. Good night. The next voice text to Stuart. Thanks for today. We're almost there. Love you, dude. I had another 15 before I hit the canyon, so I cranked one out to dad. Hey, pops, just checking in. Not to worry. I'm on it. Let's connect before EOD tomorrow. Miss and love you and mom. Patty girl, hanging her right onto Beverly Canyon and heading up into the hills, I enjoyed the fragrance of jasmine in the cool air while Van Morrison's Someone Like You played on the stereo and my mind turned to Steve. Realizing I'd let too much time go between booty calls, I sent a voice text. Hey there, big apologies for being AWOL. Don't mean to. Give me the rest of the week and I'll make it up to you. Promise. Big hugs. Naughty Norelli. Inside two minutes, a text returned. No worries. Glad you're catching bad guys. Save time for me, and I'll be the one making it up to you. Sleep tight, Steve-o. He's turned out to be a sweet one, I whispered to the night. Making my way up the last of the curves to home, I ran a mental laundry list of things I had to do first thing in the morning. Suddenly, a young deer leapt across the road, and before disappearing, managed to kick my front end with his hind leg, catching my headlight. I instantly downshifted both my nerves and the car, trying not to slam my brakes. I felt sure the animal would be fine, but wasn't sure the same could be said for my ride. And as much as that chapped me, I knew it could have been worse. Cresting the hill, I saw the lights of my humble cottage and let out a sigh of relief. Within minutes, I was lost in a hot bath. Twenty minutes later... All the lights in the house were out, and the neighborhood was silent, except for a dog barking in the distance and the overhead sound of a red eye heading east. Another ten minutes passed before a figure, dressed in all black, got out of their car and crossed the street to Norelli's house. Creeping up the driveway, along the back side of the house and away from the motion sensor lights, the figure stopped at the corner, between a hedge and her car. Next, they crouched low, making their way alongside the car before scooting under it. As a car approached, the figure stopped moving long enough for the swath of their headlight to pass before proceeding. Within several minutes, the figure reversed their moves with precision, pausing a beat at each point and silently returned to their car. Rolling down the hill, the stranger waited until out of sight before turning on their headlights 
and disappeared into the night. Chapter 81 Switchback Before the sun broke the horizon, I was running along one of the many crests of Mulholland, doing my best to keep my tummy tucked and fanny fit without having to resort to doing the same under anesthesia. Climbing my driveway, I was now ready to face the damage from last night's deer crossing. While it wasn't as bad as I had suspected, it wasn't pretty, and given I was fairly OCD, I couldn't let it go the week without having it fixed. Inside, I spent several minutes stretching as I contemplated whether to take it to the dealer or hit up Jackie's brother who had a body shop in the valley. For now, I had a shower, an Americano, and a mother-daughter phone call in my immediate future. Just then, Stuart rang. What's up, partner? Feeling on your game? How about ahead of it? You? Mm, just helping Janine with the tiny one, then I'll meet you at the station. Okay, gotta run my car to the shop for some body work, but should hit it about the same time. I'll see- Wait, wait, wait. What happened? Uh, nothing big. Hit a deer on the way home last night. <laughs> That's what you get for living in the country. Uh, very funny. Wait, I'll, I'll pick you up. We'll be together all day anyway. Plus, we can pull double duty in the car. After texting Jackie for her brother's number, I got ready. There was a chance I might see Steve tonight after work, so I put on the extra spiff. Forty minutes later, I walked out to find Stuart leaning against my car eating a VG donut. He stopped shoving sugar to look at me. What? Never seen a detective before? Not as fine as you, Detective Norelli. He winked. Jackie's brother Jesus would arrive later and take my car to his shop, so I left the keys in the fender. Stuart and I were over the hill, caught up on baby talk, and at the precinct when Captain Nelson passed us on our way in. Hey, Brown, thought you were on baby leave. Uh, yes, sir, I was. Now I'm back. And this close, he said, squeezing his thumb and finger together, to catching the bad guys, thanks to Detective Norelli. Norelli, huh? Nice work, he said, walking away. Let's wrap this up, all right? He waved and kept walking. Doing everything we can, sir. Such warmth, Stu grinned. And what a conversationalist. Jesus had retrieved the damaged car and was making his way along Mulholland. Traffic had eased up and he was driving faster than he probably should. Having just passed Donna Pegida Drive, he hit a straightaway and punched it, smiling as the horses got up to gallop. He was about to hit a wicked switchback, locally referred to as snakebite, when he realized that he had waited 50 yards too long before downshifting. Seeing he was going too fast, he reached for the short stick to downshift, then hit the brakes too hard. That's when he felt the brake pedal drop to the floor. Making matters worse, he was in the center of the switchback, and an oncoming truck was six inches over the double line. He had to make a snap decision. Instantly, he knew it was the wrong one, as there was no guardrail to stop him. Cutting the wheel, he slid through the loose gravel and was instantly airborne. For the next three to four seconds, he was flying. Nope, Jesus, no relation to Christ Corazon, was piloting a Camaro ZL1 650 horsepower toward Mother Earth, which was appearing entirely too fast. Make that approaching the side of a house, embedded in the side of a mountain, next to a kidney-shaped pool, too fast. One of the benefits of working with the LAPD was you had friends all over the place. Also, one of the best things I ever bought for my car was a gizmo called Carlock. The smartphone app alerted my phone if it was tampered with, stolen, or wrecked. And in a city like L.A., it was easy to see why you could need it. I, on the other hand, had never needed it. Until now. Stuart and I were sitting at our desk having coffee when my car lock app pinged. It read, Your car is in trouble. Before I could get my head around why my car would be in trouble, given it had just been picked up by my professional friend of the family mechanic, my phone rang. Detective Norelli. 
Hi, Detective. This is Officer Scott Denton, LAPD. Your car's been involved in an accident, and the driver wanted me to call you right away. The look on my face must have told Stuart a shitstorm was brewing because both of his hands were in the air as he whispered, What's up? I motioned for him to wait. Officer Denton, is it? What happened? Your friend Jesus Corazon was maneuvering Mulholland, my guess much too fast, when he, let's say, misjudged a curve, dodged an oncoming vehicle, and, well, you got the picture. And, well, uh, Well, what? Uh, jumped the curve and crashed your car. My heart sank. But he's okay, right? A couple of nasty scratches. Looks like a broken arm, but all in all, yeah, he'd be okay. Good, good. Yeah, that's the good news. I mean, if... If he were a stunt driver, my guess is it'd uh, be next to impossible to do a better job of landing on... My car, Officer Denton? Yeah, pretty much toast, Detective. He took the front end off when he caught a tree on the way down. Luckily, that broke his fall. Well, that and the edge of the pool. We wrapped the call by discussing which hospital Jesus had been taken to, confirming my car would be taken to his garage. I hung up and shared the story with Stuart. We stared at one another before I said, Well, thank Christ he's okay. Stuart looked at me. Um, that's just rude. <laughs> we laughed. Then the heft of what could be behind the accident hit us. My head said, Fat Frankie. As Stuart said, Are you thinking? No coincidence. Suddenly I felt an overwhelming need to speed things up, so Stuart and I grabbed our notes from yesterday's debrief and started hammering. Let's revisit that call I got from Sharon. She sounded pretty distraught. Wanted to show me something I'd find, she said, helpful? That's easy, Stewart said, flipping open his pad, then dialing a number. Hello, this is Detective Brown, LAPD. My partner and I, Detective Norelli, met Ms. Gladstone recently. Oh, that's right, we did meet. Nice to meet you again. Wait, let me put you on speaker. Uh, tell me, is that unusual? Yes, it is. She's an early bird, uh, arrives earlier than most, and works later than everyone. Pretty much every day like clockwork. But we haven't heard a word from her, and her phone is, frankly, never outside her reach. Hi, this is Detective Norelli. Is there anything else, I don't know, strange in her behavior lately? Well, truth be told, she has been on edge lately, more than usual. And maybe that's just me being a paranoid assistant, but I don't know, may maybe not. After he rang off, I said, let's head her way and swing by Bobby's after to chat with him. Grabbing another donut, Stuart winked. Uh, Pat, I'll drive. Chapter 82. Funning Games. We arrived at Sharon's home to find no answer after several knocks, even though her car was in the driveway. Circling the house, me in one direction and Stuart in the other, we simultaneously arrived at the back entrance. Finding the door unlocked, I called out her name. Nothing. Giving one another a nod, we slowly moved through the house, room by room. Then we smelled it. The unmistakable fragrance of death. Approaching the master bedroom, we immediately knew what we would find in the bathroom. Holy, Holy shit. shit, we said simultaneously. Without skipping a beat, Stuart dialed Jackie. She answered on the second ring, telling us she could arrive in 20 as she was wrapping a job nearby. He texted her the address as a backup, then stepped across the patio to call HQ. In the meantime, I retraced my steps to the kitchen area. Finding two empty wine bottles, but no evidence of struggle, I kept looking. Nothing out of the ordinary until I ended up back in the master bedroom. On the nightstand, propped against a crystal lamp, was a suicide note. Taking out long tweezers, I picked it up and placed it in an evidence bag. Looking outside, I saw Stuart was still on the phone, so I pulled up Bobby's address, punched it into my smartphone, then rang the Hollywood Mole. Um, okay, thanks, Stuart said, re-entering the house. 
how about we call, I turned my phone so he could see Colleen Shapiro. Hmm, wish I'd thought of that. Hi, this is the Detective Norelli. May I speak with your HR department? A voice mumbled something and I instantly heard on hold music. While we waited, I motioned toward the door, making a face like I was about to vomit. Outside, I took several deep breaths. This is when I wish I smoked. Why, it's a nasty habit. But, I said, tossing my chin over my shoulder, I wouldn't have to smell that. Hello? Miss Everest's voice whined. Putting us on speaker, I greeted her kindly and reintroduced ourselves before asking, Has Bobby been around since he was released? Yes, he stopped in to tell Miss King he was innocent, then came to me for his check. Stuart and I bounced back and forth, asking if he had been acting unusual, if there were any new reports of improper conduct, and if there was anything else she could tell us. Getting zero additional assistance, we rang off and connected to the one place she told us he went every day after work. After being connected to a variety of operators, we were finally passed off to the valet department. Stu put it on speakerphone as a man answered, Hi, this is Chip. I'm the uh, valet manager. Detectives Brown and Norelli, we're trying to find out about one of your members, uh, Bobby Shapiro. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know Bobby. He's here every day. Well, like clockwork. When was the last time you saw him? Uh, like yesterday. But he's there every day. Yeah, real gym rat. Always tips big too, man. As we saw Jackie arrive, Stuart rang off. Nice to see you, girl, I said with a hug. You too, considering the circumstances, she said, giving Stuart a fist bump. Entering the living room, she whistled at the digs. As we stopped at the door to the master bath, she said, mm, And the hits just keep on coming. Look at this, I said, opening Sharon's note. She read aloud, It was time for the madness to stop. Meredith took so much from me. Her life was all I had left to take from her. And when Bobby told me he was going to turn us all in, I had to stop him. As crazy as it sounds, I couldn't handle the guilt. I'm sorry Mom and Dad love Sharon. <sighs> Looking at one another, we frowned. Yeah, I don't think so. Eso es una licora. Stuart raised his eyebrows and she said, That's just crazy. As in total bullshit. Within minutes, the room felt like a flash mob. One moment it was deathly quiet, and the next it was lit up like Grand Central Station. There was a full forensics crew setting up in one corner, and some tall guy in a suit none of us knew in the other. He gave no introduction, so we let it ride. Why all the fuss? I began when Stuart pressed a finger to his lips, waving me back outside. Outside, Stuart said, Someone higher than us wants this looked into faster than usual. Or to watch how I'm handling this case. Chapter 83 Deep Dive It wasn't long before we were pulling up to Bobby's house. The gate was open, his car was there, and all looked normal, but felt hinky. Walking toward the front door, I touched the hood of his car. It was cold, which told me he hadn't likely gone anywhere this morning. Recently, anyway. Stuart rang the doorbell, cleaning his sunglasses. We waited. Nothing. He knocked, tried the door, but since it was locked, we started around the house. Just like before, he in one direction and me the other. After knocking on the back door, we entered through a sliding door to find a handsome living room that was certainly a guy's place. The TV was on to a sports channel with the volume down. Most of the lights were on, and there were empty bottles and glasses scattered about like a party had taken place. Stuart called out his name a couple of times. Still nothing. We drew our guns and continued moving through the house, splitting up to cover more space in less time. Nothing was in the front of the house. We met at the master bedroom, where our questions were answered. Lying on the floor next to Bobby's bed was a massive compound bow just like the ones we saw at the straight and arrow. There was also an arrow straight through a very dead Bobby. His head was slumped over, but his eyes were still open. 
His frozen expression seemed to say, What? Shit, Stuart said, holstering his gun. Someone got right to the point, I said without thinking. He looked at me and frowned. There's something you don't see every day. Yeah, went out to hunt it instead of the hunter. Okay, let's run this before we call it into Jackie or the captain. Copy that. I bent over to examine the arrow. In a whispered voice, I couldn't help. Straight through the heart in your tube Looking over at my partner, his expression said, Really? Too easy? How about too early? We couldn't help but chuckle, even amidst the horror. Stuart backed up to examine the whole room, and we both scanned the room for a suicide note. After all, it seemed to be all the rage. Coming up empty, Stuart smirked. Can this get any weirder? We made our way through the rest of the house until we ended up in another master. Stopping at the door, I involuntarily gasped. Ha! Partner, it just got weirder. Stuart rounded the corner to see what I saw. A woman in her early to mid-thirties, blonde, very beautiful, and quite dead, and tied up in the middle of a large, modern four-poster bed. What the hell? And who do you suppose this is? I circled the opposite side to observe the elaborate contraption. Partner, whatever happened to just good old-fashioned sex? The woman was hogtied and on her knees, her wrists bound together behind her back then tied to her ankles, all with silk scarves. Another several scarves were tied together, wrapped around her neck, then looped over and tied off to a metal bar overhead. Obviously, the complex contraption was orchestrated so that the more the victim struggled, the closer they would come to their ultimate demise. I've seen this in bondage videos, but never in person, Stuart mumbled. With all the bindings, it was anyone's guess whether her being blue was due to the loss of circulation, the length of time in that position, or both. Either way, Jackie would know. Stuart had a quizzical expression. You think sex got out of hand and he freaked, or... Nah, our guy wouldn't freak. Whoever's behind this made it look exactly like what we wanted it to look like. Too tidy. Entirely. Back in Bobby's room, we walked around the bed several times, examining the elaborate setup. I'm guessing they haven't been dead that long. Just then I had a thought circle my head like a trapped bird. Stu, let's, just for the sake of argument, say Sharon came here, killed him, and then drove all the way back home to kill herself. Looking back toward the other room, I added, Oh, and was she done before, Bobby? She'd have to have been, right? Perhaps, or maybe, you know, like you're noodling like you are. Sharon walked in on their kinky, and in a jealous rage, hmm, maybe, maybe not, but just to think outside the box, like we're doing here, what if what if she's doing a two-for-one? What? I paced the room. As in, you've come this far, got nothing to lose, and go out in a blaze of glory? Mm-hmm. And like I said, our guy wants us to do exactly what we're doing, trying to make sense of the chaos, when in reality, that's where my money is. I motioned for Stuart to join me outside and after a deep inhale said, You know what this is, right? What? Variety. Splain. Remember the variety of methods in our earlier conversation about suicides? He nodded. Some time ago, someone found their father dead and imagined my adrenaline surge that if a person wanted to get rid of someone, they'd stage a suicide. Mm-hmm, like your list, he bobble-headed, so the span of time keeps you out of view. 
and the variety becomes the calling card. Yes, and maybe even along with the way the bodies are posed. All we have to do is catch him before his next pose. Chapter 84 She Said For all practical purposes, Stuart and I felt we had uncovered the killer of not one, but potentially four murders inside the past week. Now, ordinarily, that would be enough to validate a celebration. However, we had different ideas about the matter. I'd gotten a voicemail from my insurance company and wanted me to contact them, but I had little patience for that and wanted to see the current now. Cranking through Hollywood and jumping onto the 101, we would be in the valley in a blink. Just about the time I began to fantasize about the next car I'd get, McLeod sent a text saying he heard the news and wanted the dish. I invited him to join us for drinks. Then, just as we descended into Studio City, Jackie pinged to say, The suit wanted to see my report before anyone else. Just blocks from the shop, I saw Dad had left a voicemail, so I listened to a message about them already having an offer on the house. Well, that's great timing. Stuart had been following the barrage of incoming messages the whole way, but hadn't said anything. With a sigh, I whined, Can I join your maternity sabbatical? Standing in the bay of the hot, noisy, and grease-stained body shop, I nearly burst out crying when I saw my baby, a scratched and tangled, wet and twisted hunk of steel on a tow truck. Stuart wrapped his arm around me. Baby, she didn't feel a thing. An enormous and fully tatted employee with an oval name badge that read Mongo eyeballed us for much too long before shuffling our way. Uh, looks like a long stretch of hard time, I mumbled before he was within earshot. And then some. Approaching, he stood a half foot taller than my already tall partner. He smelled like the inside of an oil pan, but he had unusually kind eyes. Removing a sweaty bandana, he said, Uh, can I help you? Showing our badges, I said, Detectives Norelli and Brown were friends of Jesus, and here to see about that car? I pointed. His expressionless face morphed into a huge smile, revealing a row of white teeth. Front and center was an enormous gold cap with a letter M adorned in sparkling stones. Charming. Any friend of Jesus is a friend of mine, he said, extending a huge, filthy hand. I bypassed the grease and instead shared a fist bump. We made small talk about the condition of Jesus, then got down to business, explaining who I was and how my car was originally set to get there. Big reason for coming right away is to see why the car lost the brakes. With a wink and a lopsided grin, he said, Well, let's take a peek and see what we can learn, Ms. Detective. Within minutes, Mongo and his team had the car unloaded from the truck and lifted high on a rack, where we were all underneath looking at her belly. Oh, shit. Yeah, not good. Mm -mm. Look at this, Miss Detective, he said, shoving his head in between parts I never knew existed. Yeah, the brake lines, uh, they were cut. Whoever did this knew what they were doing cut the line just enough so after a short drive and a couple of good pumps it'd give out what the fuck mongo grinned <laughs> what she said chapter 85 plan c evidently news had quickly spread as we returned to the precinct with applause from a handful of officers we gave nods like we were receiving an award on the way to my cubicle i tossed an in and out bag in the trash and noticed a blinking red light on my desk phone Turning to Stewart, I said, Uh, since when did we... New phone system put in overnight, a rookie named Roger said, handing us both a notice. I tossed mine in the trash. Stewart scanned his. Yeah, I heard it was coming. Named call management or something like that, so we can't ignore them. Mission accomplished. He grabbed a cup from his desk and tossed his head toward the canteen. 
While he went for coffee, I went for the phone, punched keys, and listened to a message from Sharon. Detective Norelli, I've, uh, I've been, I've been trying to get hold of you. I have something you really should have. Um, I'm nervous a little bit. It's, um, a video that shows, well, uh, stuff you need to see. I I don't want to say much more until, uh, wait, I've got to go. She sounded scared and maybe drunk. The noise in the background sounded like a restaurant. At the end, it was obvious she was meeting a man. The timestamp said it was received at 6.17 last night. The machine blinked another light. I pushed play. Hello, detective. If you're hearing this, you've no doubt survived to live another day. Life has a way of changing in the blink of an eye, doesn't it? Oh, and you can disregard that last message. You won't be watching anything anytime soon. My skin crawled like a thousand spiders. It was unnerving, but the message was even creepier. And the timestamp, 12.04 a.m. Who was that? And what did he mean if? And change how? Stuart returned with two cups. Handing me one, he stared. Uh-oh, what's wrong? Just listen. I put it on speaker. Watching him, I tried to recall the last time I saw Sharon. After hearing both messages, he sat. Now that is too damn freaky. Time to make our move. Later that night in downtown Los Angeles, at a secluded watering hole on 6th Street called Conundrum, we all gathered. Stewart got a hall pass from Janine. Steve hung his hammer for the day and drove up from Marina Del Rey. Jackie put the morgue on hold and made the shortest commute from Echo Park. And McLeod joined us from the valley. An old flame-turned-good-friend, Gabe King, managed a joint named Conundrum. Gabe was wounded by an IED in Afghanistan and returned home to open a handsome speakeasy in the tradition of old Hollywood. He was built like a brick furnace and sported a beard that Grizzly Adams would envy. Even though he didn't look like he would own a classy joint like this, when he got back to the States, he said he wanted to do something completely different. So, after rounding up cash from friends and family, he never looked back. After dinner, we covered the finer details about our mission, explaining how we wanted to keep things quiet, push through the bureaucracy, and run the operation off the books. Given our suspected mastermind was behind a long series of murders, had remained undetected for decades, and was a formidable foe who should not be taken lightly, we wasted little time orchestrating our next steps, putting Plan C into play. Chapter 86 Wrong Number The next morning, both the LA Times and LA Daily News released the Bobby Shapiro story. Their bold headlines were sure to sell. LA Times, TV director Bobby Shapiro kills Getty art curator Sharon Gladstone, then himself. LA Daily News, local celeb director Shapiro ends mystery with double murder-suicide. I sat at my desk reading both articles and realized it was the first time in my career I recalled seeing my name in print. I had to admit, it was cool. My brother was always in the press. It helped that he had the heft of both my father and Captain Nelson, his boss at the time, to boost his ratings. Once again, the Norelli name was synonymous with crime-fighting in Southern California. My basking in the momentary glory was interrupted by a barrage of texts. First, my mother, who rarely texts, wrote, So proud of my girl. Let's celebrate soon. My father, who never texts, wrote, You done good, Patricia. Love, Dad. Shay wrote, Nice work, Mama Bear. See you soon. XO. 
Steve texted, Bravo, Detective Superwoman. I'd say some celebrating is in our future. Love, Steve-O. Detective Norelli. Hello, Detective Norelli. How's that spotlight feeling about now? Here come the spiders. Let me guess, could this be the real killer? That's very good, Detective. What's next? That is after you're done basking in the limelight. Or? Or do your fucking job and catch the real killer. I sat in shock for a solid three minutes until my monkey mind was interrupted by my cell phone. I was relieved it was Stuart. Morning, Detective First Grade. I could hear his mile-wide smile across the phone. Hello, Stuart. Uh-oh. Yeah, that tone. With my proper name. What's wrong? I just got the most unnerving call. Give me a second while I figure out this new system. I think I can replay recorded incoming calls. I figured it out, then played it back. When it was done, I said, Weird, huh? Recall the conversation with our friends at the bar. Which one? The ABC conversation about his being bored, wanting to get caught, or... Oh, oh, yeah, 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 right. Looks like he wants two out of three. Bored and wants to get caught. We discussed the way we would choose to release the story. And as much as Captain Nelson didn't like misleading information, we both knew he wanted it solved now and would likely agree to our take on the situation. Do you feel the timeline might be shorter than we originally thought? Yeah, I was thinking about that last night, Stu, when I couldn't get to sleep. Are you thinking about making a push? If it is him, then it is what it is, and he's going to do what he's going to (laughs) do. Could you please stop with the philosophical bullshit? It's way too early in the day. I say instead of waiting for his next move, we make ours and push all his buttons. Now that's my girl. He hung up, and I began the setup. First, I rang Tersal's office, asking the secretary if the doctor was in. She said he was with a client and would be for another hour. I asked her to tell him I had an an emotional emergency and to call me at his first opportunity. Next, I texted McLeod with an address, telling him we needed to shorten our gap by stepping up the process. A quick reply confirmed such. Finally, I texted Jackie, asking her to call me as soon as she could. Needing fresh air, I walked out back to where the taco trucks parked. Snagging a short Americano and a bench under a tree, I began massaging several ideas. One involved taking the extra time to nurture a relationship with Tercel. It would have allowed me to get deeper inside his world and develop a love interest. But we couldn't be sure when he would strike. Plus, having developed a keen patience for long periods between kills, we weren't sure he would follow his same previous pattern or what would trigger his desire to kill. The plan would force the situation by creating our own trigger. And there was one thing Stu and I knew. All suspects left clues somewhere. And more often than not, they were inside their own home. My mission was simple. Find a way into his home. Chapter 87. Off-Center. Given the trap needed to be set, and I was the perfect bait, I put on my best and arrived at Tercel's home. I arrived early, hoping to catch him off guard. I also wanted to be sure my crew, traveling a distance behind, would be able to get into place without attracting too much attention. We didn't want to get there at the same time. Just as I approached the front door, Tercel opened it. Smiling, he took my hand and kissed it. 
Hello, Patricia. You look simply amazing. I did a curtsy, something I was pretty sure I'd never done in my entire life. Thank you. You're pretty fetching yourself, Darius. He waved me in, adding, Early, too, I see. It was the excitement, I suppose. Nice to see you out of uniform. And you, away from the confines of your office. I was wearing my favorite red dress, a stunning color, and material that left very little to the imagination. I could practically feel him undress me as I entered the majestic foyer. Wow, your home is spectacular. Thank you, he smiled, motioning for me to enter the large formal living room. After pouring two glasses of champagne, he conducted a lengthy tour of the entire home. We talked and laughed nonstop for nearly an hour, sharing stories of past loves and current hobbies. Sprinkled with inspirational insights, favorite books and films, we didn't speak about work, his nor mine, until the murder case snuck its way into the conversation during a momentary lull. How did you know Bobby Shapiro was the killer? I couldn't help my expression and felt certain he assumed he had crushed the magic of the moment. He tried to change the shift by showing me his impressive art collection. Uh, not to change the subject, but to change the subject. I'll get back to that, but tell me, how were you able to acquire such an impressive collection of art? Several feel very familiar. Actually, Sharon Gladstone was instrumental in helping me curate such a grand collection, and they should be familiar. Uh, over there, that's an original Warhol. Um, there's a Peter Max and an Edward Hopper on this wall. And a favorite of mine is right here, he said, sliding his hand alongside an oversized frame. Lichtenstein? Amazing. I genuinely enjoy the art, and the light pouring in the room made for an overall serenity in his beautiful home. But most impressive is the Rembrandt. There, on the far wall. Not to boast, but certainly the most expensive. Walking over, I went to touch the signature. Boo! I jumped, and without thinking, instantly broke into nervous laughter. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, you, you know who you looked like right there at the very moment? Who? Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. What? <laughs> That's hilarious! Laughing, he kissed my cheek. Please excuse me, just a moment. Then we're going to have one more drink before heading out to dinner, which you're going to love. Sound good? With a nod, I flashed my brightest smile. Sounds perfect. Good. Be right back. As he disappeared, so did my smile. Reaching in my purse, I removed my phone and sent a group text to Stuart, Steve, Jackie, and McLeod. Get into position. After a beat, copy. Return from all in the group. I returned the phone to my clutch and rushed to decide what came next. Call it experience, a wild guess, or an educated hunch, but for some reason, and given his luxurious taste, I decided to do a quick search of the room. I wasn't even sure what to look for, but perhaps a secret panel, an odd switch, or just about anything could provide some resemblance to a clue. There wasn't enough time to scour the house, so I went with where I was standing. All the walls were completely smooth and covered only with meticulously placed priceless art. The only fixtures were the recessed lights in the ceiling. Scanning the floor, I spotted a square pattern different from the rest. What caught my eye amidst all the smooth, symmetrical lines of the hardwood floors was what could be a panel. I bent over and pushed. It clicked open, revealing two simple buttons. One was red, the other blue. I pushed the red one, and the lights dimmed to one-third brightness. I heard something down the hall. Quickly, I clicked the blue button. Each piece of art slowly and silently slid aside, revealing entirely new framed art beneath. 
Stepping closer, I involuntarily gasped as I was caught off guard by what I saw. Chapter 88 Big Reveal I heard Tercel's footsteps coming down the hall, but was frozen in place, visually devouring each of the hideous photographs. I couldn't help myself. One photo, older than the rest, was black and white and slightly out of focus. It was a woman who appeared to be in her late thirties, lying on a bed in a peculiar pose. Pills were scattered on the bed beside her, an empty bottle on the nightstand. Footsteps continued to echo down the hallway. Another photo showed a heavy-set woman hanging from the end of a rope. Her mouth was open and her eyes bulging as she stared at the ceiling. I was mesmerized by another gruesome photo displaying a woman face down on a city street. Her head was partially split open. Tercel entered the room just as my eyes came to rest on another piece of alternate art. He cleared his throat, breaking my concentration. I spun around and said, Are these all the murders? Expressionless, he remained silent. I couldn't help but turn back and gawk at another, where an old black and white photo of a man sat in the front seat of an old car. The perspective was from the passenger window, looking through shattered glass. A chunk was missing from the man's head. Without turning, I asked, Is that your father? You really shouldn't have, Patricia. We were off to such a delightful start. As I stepped further away from him and closer to the art, my eyes fell on another piece. (sighs) Meredith, recognizing the Marilyn Monroe pose and slit throat, the photo was black and white except where the blood was, which had been hand-tinted a deep red to match her lips. Its ethereal quality resembled an X-ray. She, like you, had so much potential to be loved by me. His footsteps slowly approached, but I was locked on the images. They're all so haunting. Why did you have to rush things, Patricia? We had such a beautiful and seductive future ahead. Turning to him, my eyes shot over his shoulder, landing on Bobby. An arrow anchored him to a headboard. The colors were overprocessed, creating a psychedelic feel. My beautiful, intelligent Patricia. When I turned back to him, our eyes met. But these were not the eyes I had revealed my innermost secrets to these past weeks. They appeared darker and more distant, as though looking through me. Chapter 89. Surround Sound. Outside Tercel's office, Stuart and Jackie, dressed in all black, were 15 feet from the master bedroom windows, tucked within two enormous spruce pines. She was wearing a 9mm and Stuart a 45. Both were holstered but unsnapped. They had wireless transmitters in their ears and were able to communicate with Steve and McLeod, who were on Tercel Street but two houses down. Their setup was a cable TV van. Not original, but it worked. Between the high-intensity microphone embedded in a satellite dish atop the van and wireless microphones attached to both the art gallery and master bedroom windows, McLeod was recording everything. There were only two hitches so far. First, there was an intermittent pulse every 20 to 30 seconds, which created a momentary static. It lasted only long enough to create anxiety for a handful of seconds, but because of such, the recording was sure to miss some words along the way. Oh, my God. God, it's like a blocking device. Who knew? McLeod said. The other hitch? About 20 minutes ago, the only direct communications they had with Norelli's phone completely vanished. She sent a message telling them to get ready. They all replied, then nothing. That meant they were without a go signal. 
Not the biggest deal, as they had Stuart and Jackie's eyeballs on the back of the house. The plan was to wait until they heard Norelli use the trigger word, decoy. Otherwise, they would go with the visual. Norelli's plan had been to enter, snoop, pass and tell, and while the couple was out to dinner, the crew would enter for evidence. Somewhere around their gallery showing, something shifted. Now, according to Stewart, Norelli was naked and bound to a bed in the master bedroom. She didn't appear to be in harm's way, but that could change at any moment, as the thin line of danger lying the fact her cell could pull a switch. However, given his methodical nature, the crew assumed they had a lengthier window of time. McLeod, do you have enough of a confession to bust his nut? Stuart whispered. Uh, kind of. Mostly. Are you ready to move? Steve asked. Almost. Stand by. He looked at Jackie. You good? Ready to clock that polla. Stuart knew enough Spanish to know she meant cock. Chapter 90. Air Supply. Erotic asphyxiation, or breath control play, was the intentional restriction of oxygen to the brain for the purpose of sexual arousal. It was also known as asphyxiophilia, autoerotic asphyxia, and hypoxphilia. Whatever the clinical name, it often began with masturbation, either alone or with another, and progressed by constricting oxygen. This left one literally gasping for breath until dead. As Tercel was planning the demise of his next victim using this particular method of suicide, he found Norelli to be an exemplary pupil. Spending several weeks with her in therapy, he quickly learned of many characteristics which made her the perfect candidate for his latest suicide device. She was beautiful, extremely headstrong, knew how to use the assets she had, and longed for the approval and acceptance of men. This was likely due to having to work for the love and attention of her father. Tercel ascertained that Norelli's status as a tomboy at an early age was a response to needing to fit in and to be treated as an equal. Living in the shadow of her brother taught her to use any device available to compete in a man's world. And she was a bit of a control freak. Detective Norelli was outstretched on an oversized William IV four-poster bed, circa 1835. The red velvet draping above her head was a striking contrast to her fair and naked body. Both her hands and feet were bound by silk kimono sashes. Her arms were spread wide and tied to the head of the bed. Her legs were close together and attached to the footboard. Her mouth was gagged with another kimono sash. Tercel stood at the foot of the bed admiring her striking figure. He wasn't sure which half, if entirely decipherable, was more attractive or seductive. His plans were to turn the evening's particular pose into his most epic creating a dramatic suicide tour de force. It would leave those who discovered her breathless. Tercel had taken a luxurious time getting showered and shaved, using his immaculate preparation as the backdrop of luring his client and patient into his bedroom. Having spent days, if not weeks, imagining the encounter, his body had felt electrified with anticipation. He was wearing charcoal slacks, a black cashmere turtleneck, and black boots, all Prada. His handsome and shiny Cartier watch vibrated the top of the hour. Staring at Norelli created an instant and eager arousal. I admire how you arrived an hour early for our date, no doubt hoping to throw me off balance. She struggled to no avail. He smiled without conscience. Little did you know I was prepared for your doing that, having planted that very seed of thought just hours ago. You don't even recall our quick little phone call, do you? Her confused expression gave him the answer. No, I don't suppose so. 
I've used that little trick on you so many times. Taking his smartphone from a pocket, he swiped the screen until a video of his big smile appeared. He walked to the side of the bed and turned it so she could see. Pressing play, she saw herself sitting across from him in his office. He was speaking quietly and with a specific cadence. Her eyes slowly closed. He turned the camera around to show his face as he mouthed, Watch this. She watched with wide, panicked eyes, not recalling the scene she was witnessing. He watched as a frown creased her forehead. Hmm. You don't remember that, do you? She shook her head. Years of studying hypnotherapy had paid off. Knowing how much practice, patience, and persuasion it required, Darius was rather proud of himself. He was the master of all three. The most prized guinea pig in his stable had been Angie. She was among his first patients, had the most to gain, but had the weakest of defenses. Meredith was his second, and the patient upon which he based most of his sexual experiments. Knowing her tendency toward the more perverse, she proved to be a most exceptional student. Now he admired his latest display of art perched atop his bed. Then, in a flash of anger, her apparent quiet sorrow exploded into a vitriolic rage. Gasping, she tried with all her might to kick him. I'm guessing that's a no. Putting away his smartphone, he picked up a professional camera and snapped several pictures. These, as you might imagine, will act as the before photos. Satisfied, he poured a glass of champagne and said, Cheers! Chapter 91 True Confession Tercel paced, wondering what to do now that his plans had been shifted by someone else. He needed to improvise. I thought we could have a nice life together. You could have been my it girl, he smiled. You have everything I want, all that I need, and I could have given you everything you could have ever dreamt for. My biggest gift to you would have been the love of a good man based on unconditional love. His expression shifted as he said, unlike your father. As for Steve, <laughs> well, it would have been oh so easy to have taken his place. He's weak, just like Shapiro was. Writhing back and forth, I fought the bonds that held me, and as much as I wanted to scream, the strips of silk would muffle my efforts. Tersal walked over and removed the gag. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Darius. Seriously. And I really, I really am sorry. I am I'm sorry. Please believe me. His expression showed a flicker of confusion. You don't mean it, he casually said, tossing the gag on the bed. It was all so perfectly planned and executed, Patricia. Bobby takes the fall, and it is all sewn up. Or Sharon, however way the final details blew in the wind. It was a delicious plan. A quarrel ends in a standoff where two lovers die. Either way, the nightmare, as you said, is case closed. I know. I, I, I know. I was stupid. So stupid. And I'm, I'm sorry. I really am, Darius. Please believe me. I couldn't get a read on his expression. What, what can I do to make you believe me? We were having such a good time. Until you made it all go to hell. What happened, Darius? Please, help, help me understand you better. He got silent, then walked to the window, staring out at the city lights. Hmm, Hollywood, where all your dreams come true. Yeah, fuck that. As he was lost in thought, I looked toward the large wall of windows, searching for any sign of my team. The Oscar show was over, he began in a low voice, and we left early because Meredith wanted to party. And why not? She had just had a lifetime dream come true. 
I can't imagine what it must have felt like to have won an Oscar, but there were spoil sports among us. Bobby was pissed because he wasn't getting his way, which only made her bitchy and she caved. So our famous Hollywood foursome left and drove to Bobby's to party, which we did for a while. Hmm. That was until Meredith pulled a hissy fit saying she wanted to take the party to her home. She sweetened the pot by saying she had all sorts of tasty drugs for those who wanted them, and plenty of sex all night long. Needless to say, that got everyone's attention. Still staring out at the growing dusk, Darius shook his head like he was listening to someone. I said I'd play along, and Sharon, who was hammered worse, agreed. And fickle Bobby? <laughs> well, whatever MJ wanted, he did. So we went to Meredith's and partied well into the night. What happened, Darius? Tell me, please. Just, just tell me. Darius's expression was blank. Hmm. Okay, I've got nothing to lose. During the party, Meredith, who was drunk and high, a rarity for her, blurts out she's pregnant and with Bobby's baby. Sharon was happy, Bobby was surprised as hell, and I tried to be a good sport, but deep down, I was pissed. When he paused, I was distracted by movement outside the window. My eyes flicked to Darius to make sure he hadn't seen me. We partied until about two-ish, I guess. Well, until everyone passed out. Darius whipped his head toward me and said, Why am I telling you all of this? I'm the shrink here. <laughs> Darius, please continue. I mean, why not? You know so much about me. It's plain to see we have a connection. Whatever that is. And, and just... Maybe it's time, he mumbled just as he started to pace. He dialed his cell phone. Hi, Angie. It's Dr. Tercel. Yes, how are you? He looked at me, then turned his back. Good, 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 good. Sorry to bother you, but remember remember what you and I talked about the other day? About my mother's home? Yes, good of you to remember. And the other place in Malibu? Yes, yes. Please move forward with that, will you? Oh, yes, immediately. In fact, write up the paperwork tonight, and I'll meet you first thing in the morning. Yes, we'll dial it all in. Shouldn't take long. Okay, thank you. Bye now, Angie. Ringing off, he came to the side of the bed. Using the back of his hand, he softly brushed along the side of one breast, then the other, then up along my neck. His gentle touch came to rest on the side of my cheek. You are so beautiful, Patricia. I wanted you all to myself. I snuggled to his hand and whispered, You can't have me. All to yourself, just like you said. It's all done. There's nothing left to say. I smiled. His eyes turned cold. He said, Almost, and then walked away. Darius, tell me the rest of it. Just between us. Like you said, it's case closed. I just want to understand you better. <laughs> okay, where was I? It uh, must have been about 3 a.m. when I left Sharon's room. We had made love, but she passed out. I was feeling good, a little angry, and very horny for Meredith. So I went to her room, where she and Bobby were. I woke him, telling him to join Sharon, and that it was my turn. The four of us often did that. We'd make homemade porn on weekends. Just crazy shit. We agreed to share earlier in the night, so he obliged. Well, that and some of my hypno-magic, he winked. Getting into bed, I woke her and told her the baby was mine. She didn't appear surprised. Actually, she seemed happy. And we made love until we passed out. I had begun losing sensation in my hands and looking down at my feet, saw they were turning blue. Darius, could you please be alive and untie me? I, I can't feel my hands or my feet and they 
really hurt. You'll just try and do something stupid. No, I promise, Darius. He looked around as though he'd misplaced something and left the room. Looking at the window, I saw no movement. Darius returned with a black leather satchel. I can't quite decide which plan I want to go forward with, but since I called Angie, and given that play is now in the works, maybe I should just, as they say, cut my losses and move on. He removed a length of rope, some zip ties, handcuffs, and another scarf, and displayed them across the bed. Darius, yes, I'm scared, but please finish the story. After that, you can do with me as you wish, but I need to know the truth. He looked at me as though considering it. And, and laugh if you must. I, I suppose it's the detective in me. A smile sneaked up the corner of his mouth. And if your secret has to die with me, that is, if you don't want to have me as your own, so be it. You can toss me aside like all the others. Judging from his reaction, my plea brightened his spirits because he smiled and started neatly arranging the items side by side. I don't suppose there's any real harm in that. After all, you're a detective and I'm a doctor. We have a moral obligation to our respective professions. He untied my wrists first, allowing me to rub the circulation back into them, then did the same with my ankles. Next, he placed heavy zip ties on my wrist. Apparently pleased, he sat on the side of the bed. You know, Patricia, the one mistake I made that night, and perhaps in general, was not fully understanding just how much of a sex addict Bobby was. I mean, he had taken steroids forever, but he often was jacked up on speed, sometimes coke, and on a rare occasion, meth. Anyhow, he was sporting a non-stop heart on that night. What I didn't learn until later, under hypnosis, was that he had awakened in the night and snuck into Meredith's panic room, which had a two-way mirror. And there he watched me and Meredith for who knows how long. Evidently, later when I woke up, still fixating on what I had learned earlier, Darius started breathing heavy, stood and walked to the window again. I was fuming. I mean, she was pregnant with that idiot's child. He seemed lost for a moment, so I whispered, Go on, Darius, I of all people won't hold anything against you. We built our relationship on trust, right? After a long sign, a short nod, he continued, I'm guessing when we started making love again, we must have been making a lot of noise. I think the speaker there in the panic room must have been on and awakened Bobby. As whacked as it sounds, he loved watching us. Anyhow, later I learned he had a GoPro and was filming through the glass. Then after I... Hmm. When I began posing her, I guess Bobby freaked. Sometime between then and my shower, he must have grabbed Sharon and snuck out together. I think that's the sound I heard. His gaze looked angry, then shifted, making me think he was about to cry. I didn't know until later, when he told me about the video, he was planning to use it against me. Darius, is that why Sharon called me? Whipping his head toward me, his expression was as if I had just appeared. What? Is that why Sharon called me recently? I suppose... About the time Bobby was headed to jail, one of them got the camera. Then last night, I got my hands on it. Isn't it good knowing you can share your deepest secrets with me, Darius? Just like I've shared with you? His gentle smile slowly melted away. Hmm. It wasn't supposed to end that way, Patricia. After all the pushing boundaries, I guess we just got crazy and spun out. But when I learned Meredith was pregnant by that Neanderthal, I couldn't bear the thought. 
He sat frozen in silence for a long moment before quietly saying, hmm. Somewhere along the way, a switch got flipped. Maybe in all of us. Things were very quiet all of a sudden. It made Stuart nervous. Not only that, but it looked like Tercel was walking Norelli down the hall to a room they hadn't yet covered. Heads up, Stuart whispered into the mic. I don't have eyes on Norelli. I repeat, no eyes on Norelli. Looks like Tercel's moved her to another room. Copy that, Steve replied. I'm moving out. I'll travel along the south side of the house. Repeat, Steve, moving to the south side of the house. Copy, I'll move north. Jackie will cover the east and remain in the trees. Repeat, Stuart, moving north. Jackie covers east. Copy, Steve said, climbing out of the van. McLeod chimed in. And I'm staying locked down in the van. Chapter 92 Inside Out Why Tercel suddenly decided to move me to another room, I had no idea. But he gave me a robe and secured me to a chair which faced French doors that looked out onto a courtyard. Across the room, he pressed a button under the lip of the desk, and a paneled wall slowly opened, revealing a bank of large television monitors. If anything happens, at least I'll see it first. I quickly surmised the top eight monitors were cameras that pointed in all directions, providing a 360-degree view of the entire property. The next eight covered the front gate and front door, the kitchen door, as well as one that faced both outside and inside the four-car garage, as well as the courtyard I was facing, which included the patio just outside the master. The final camera was high atop in a palm tree on the southeast corner of the property. When I went to the bathroom earlier, I checked all the cameras, Tercel said with a sneer, and that's when I saw your partner in the trees just outside my bedroom. I also spotted your van parked on the street, and knowing these vans aren't allowed in the neighborhood after five o'clock, plus the fact that no one lives next door, and I know the gentleman across the street who, like myself, has satellite, it was easy to see the phony play. On the upside, looks like your team came prepared. Tercel reached in his desk drawer and took out a black six-hour P229 and a large hypodermic needle full of a yellow fluid. And as you can see, so did I. My blood ran cold. Darius, can I ask you just one more question? He shook his head. Darius, I need to know if you killed every one of those people. He stopped and frowned. What people? Let's start with your father. Heavens no. He was my idol, my hero. I would never hurt him. But your mother... She was a tormenting bitch, his voice bouncing off the tall windows. She was never happy, always nagging my father, and eventually drove him to his death. Staring at the wall of screens, he mumbled, Good riddance. But all of those others, you must have... Stop! That's the past, Patricia. We're in the present. Time to move on. Just then I saw motion outside my peripheral vision. Now, where was I? He said, approaching the screens. No one can get in or off the property without my being able to see them. And this, he nodded toward the gun and needle, should be just two of the things that help us get away without a hitch. For the first time, I didn't see a way out. Here's what we're going to do. Tercel began, stepping behind me to roll the chair across the floor. You're going to be my security blanket, right in front of me. They won't shoot at me for fear of hitting you. Also, I have this tasty little cocktail of sodium thiopental, pentobarbital, and pancuronium bromide, otherwise known as a lethal injection. I won't bore you with what each ingredient does, but suffice it to say it, it takes one injection. Within 30 seconds, you're dead. As brave as I thought I was, I wasn't. 
why are you doing this, Darius? <laughs> oh, that's a good question, Patricia, I suppose, perhaps because even though the case is closed, you know as well as I do, your people won't let it rest. You have a reason you must bring me down, and frankly, I can't let you. I understand how you feel, and honestly, you can get away with this, Darius. I'm serious. As sincerely as I tried, his expression said, you're full of shit. Look, the one piece of the equation that must remain intact is me. You kill a cop in Los Angeles, they'll turn the earth upside down to bake you. Especially when both my father and brother get involved. Are you kidding? I know who your family is. So, what do you say? How about... Stop! If I thought you really cared for me and would actually be with me... I would do anything, and I mean anything in the entire world to make that happen. You have my word. His expression was oddly precious, part scared boy, part desperate man, but in the oddest way, I was drawn to him. But you don't, and I can't, because it won't work. He placed the gun in the waistband in the small of his back, secured the syringe in his left hand, and picked up what appeared to be an oversized house phone while rolling me into the center of the hallway. From this vantage point, we were both able to see the front and back doors, the courtyard and kitchen entrances, while still being able to see the bank of monitors in his office. He pushed a button on the phone, and as he spoke, the loudspeakers in the four corners of the house sounded. Hello, friends, and welcome to my beautiful home. I can see all of you right where you stand. Or as the case is, for one, sitting in the van two doors away. So please, wait right where you are for further instructions. And thank you. Chapter 93 Outside In McLeod barked from inside the van. That fucker! He was sure he had calculated everything. That made him nervous, and he didn't like being nervous, especially with his boss in the crosshairs and his ass in a sling. No shit, Steve shouted into his microphone. He wasn't used to making mistakes, never in the service, never at work, and rarely in his personal life, because it felt like weakness, and at the moment, he was feeling weak. What the hell? Stuart whispered loudly. He knew a good deal of the success or failure of this mission rested on his shoulders, and he was damned and determined to make things right. For Pat for his team, and for himself. Fucking cockblock. Jackie growled into her mic. She was protective of her family and friends. And if any of them were ever in danger, all bets were off. Having served in Afghanistan, Steve saw it as a no-brainer. We barged the door, give him a tap, 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 and save the girl. McLeod was pissed. I should have chosen a different van. Jackie pictured her brother and was enraged. Merda. And Stuart felt the complete heft of the situation. No one is going to die on my watch. With minutes ticking, nerves racking, palms sweating, and Norellian way too deep, the team knew they had to kick things into high gear. Chapter 94 Tick Tock Opening the secret compartment in the floor where he stored more than enough incriminating evidence to put him away for eight lifetimes, he removed a go bag. It had money, passports, a ring of keys, a burner phone, and a device that looked like a television remote control. Dialing a burner phone, Darius said, It's me. Open the garage, leave the keys, and walk away. Do it right now. Got it? Now go. Hanging up, he removed the SIM card, walked down the hall to the powder room, and flushed it down the toilet. Back in the middle of the hall, he stared at me with a half-cocked grin. Now this is where things can get sticky or go smoothly. 
It's your call, Patricia. Follow my rules, and you go free. And before you know it, all of you will be talking about your close call over cold beers by midnight. He leaned over to kiss me, but I turned my face at the last second, giving him my cheek. After hesitating, he kissed it anyway. All right, have it your way, he said, pressing the button on his speakerphone. Okay, people, listen up. I want you all to remain calm. If you do, everything will turn out A-OK. Stuart, you and your lady friend come out of the trees and through the back door. You on the side of the house and you in the van both enter through the front door. Do as I say, and Norelli will be safe. If not, it won't be good. He turned and pointed the phone at my face. Assure them that you're safe, but that if there are any stupid moves, you'll be dead before you hit the ground. He placed the phone in front of my mouth. Hey guys, it's me. Like he said, come in and when you enter, place your guns on the floor and slide them to the center of the hallway. And please, please don't be a hero. Within 30 seconds, the front and rear doors slowly opened simultaneously. Each person carried their gun by two fingers and laid them on the floor. Very good. Now each of you kick them toward me slowly, carefully. See the syringe nearly piercing Detective Norelli's neck? All it takes is an ounce of pressure and she's dead. And this gun in my other hand will shoot each of you. Trust me, I'm not afraid to kill all of you. Each person kicked their guns toward us. You'll burn for this, Tercel, Stuart growled. Perhaps, however, unlikely, he said, pointing to the door at the end of the hall. Now, each of you slowly go to that door and line up, single file. They did as he said, but at the last moment, Steve leapt toward Tercel, who, without hesitating or moving the syringe, <laughs> shot him in the leg. Shit! Steve fell to the floor. Blood spurt from his wound. The hero just had to do something stupid. Shaking his head, he turned the gun toward Jackie. And so very predictable. Jackie, please grab a hand towel from that powder room, tear it into strips, and wrap your boy's leg. Now. Jackie followed directions and got him bandaged in a blink. Good. Now this next step is easy, but very important. I need all of you to go get in there. Turning to Steve, he added, including you, hero. McLeod being nearest the door opened it. Open the door. It's only an elevator. It won't bite. Now get in there. No one moved, so he shouted, Get inside! They moved instantly. Good. Now the moment you're in there, pull that lever. It's just a safety device to keep the door from opening during its descent. You'll be safe, trust me. But just to be extra safe on my end, you'll have to trust me, and I'm going to keep Norelli with me. I noticed Tercella changed from using my first name to using my last. Please don't be a hero or she will die. I guarantee you. He turned to me. Do you trust me? Well, as much as you can. Yes? Good. Then reassure them. Go ahead, guys. I nodded to the elevator. You'll be okay. He won't hurt me. Very easy. You're going to push one button and go down one flight. Right into the wine cellar. As soon as I'm away, I'll ring the phone down there and give you the emergency code. You'll be up and out and home in time for dinner. By the way, there's no exit down there, so save your breath. Pushing a button, the door closed and the engine whirred for several seconds before stopping. But something didn't seem right. I whipped my head toward Tercel. What just happened? Grinning, he stepped aside. Well, now that's the tricky part. There is a wine cellar, and as you saw, it is an elevator. However, they're currently halfway between this floor and the basement. And? 
and that wouldn't ordinarily be a problem. However, as an extra precaution, I've suspended them between the two floors, and it just happens to be in an airlock, meaning they have maybe an hour before they suffocate to death. You son of a bitch! You said it was safe, and you told me that... Calm down, Patricia. They'll be okay if you play along. Tell me what will happen now. Well, first of all, and I wish we could have done this so much differently, but we can't. I'm going to leave, locking the doors behind me, thus making it impossible for you to get out. He then placed the syringe at my neck. I instantly began to sweat, mainly because you're going to take a nice, long nap. No, Darius, please. I've done everything that you've said. Patricia, your friends will be safe soon enough. I've hidden an extra phone, and when I'm away, I'll ring it, give them a code to unlock the elevator, and all will be fine. But but you said that you... I know, love, he said, kissing me on the mouth. I said a lot of things, many of which were mostly true. Darius, please, isn't there any way we can work this out? He only grinned. Please don't kill me. Enjoy your nap. Please, Darius, I'll do anything. I'm sure, he said, inserting the needle into my neck, pressing the plunger. Chapter 95 Great Escape Inside the elevator, all four listened, hearing nothing. Looking from one another, their faces showed fear. We're stuck between floors, Stuart said. And if I'm not mistaken... What? Jackie said with wide eyes. Nothing, he said, looking at the floor. What? Jackie, now panicked, screamed. McCoy sighed. Um, could be an airlock. Her eyes opened wider. Which means? Steve chimed in. Mm, could mean we have only so much air. Holy shit! Jackie whimpered, sliding down the wall. What a shitty way to go! Stuart looked at the only two buttons, foyer and cellar, then clenched his jaw. No windows, no handles, no vents. But there was a panel, and he yanked it open. It held an emergency phone. However... It had been unplugged. There was a speaker inside the panel, but no way to speak. Damn it! Upstairs, Darius waited to be sure she was out cold and grinned at the distraction of their banging inside the elevator. Taking a knife, he cut the zip ties, lost the robe, and carried her into the bedroom. Carefully positioning her, he tweaked her placement for the ultimate picture before clicking a series of shots. Taking several steps back, he inhaled the moment, swelling with thoughts. Hmm, there'll be another time for all that, he whispered, turning off his camera. Stopping at the door, he turned to admire his handiwork. See, I'm not an evil prick after all. No suicide for you, Patricia. Blowing a kiss, he returned to the foyer and gathered his things. As soon as he was outside, he used the remote to open the garage. Pushing another button, every door around the entire house locked. Using the last button, he opened the front gate. Entering the garage, he tossed his bag on the seat, got in, and pulled to the end of the driveway before stopping to look back at the house one last time. Hmm. Thanks for the memories, Mom. After he had traveled a couple dozen blocks, he pulled into a driveway, keyed a code, and the gate opened. Around back, he entered the middle of three bays and parked. Taking out several stacks of hundreds, he tossed them and the keys onto the front seat, then closed the garage. In the next bay, he got into a new Cadillac STS and drove away. Chapter 96 Double Take Nearly two hours later, I was propped up in a hospital bed, still groggy from the hypodermic cocktail Darius gave me. 
Situation could have ended differently, partner, Stuart said, holding my hand. No doubt, I said with a scratchy voice. Jackie stood guard at the foot of my bed, shaking her head. Damn straight, thought we were all going to die in that freaking elevator. But you didn't, thanks to Mr. Gadget figuring out a way to hack that elevator phone. I grinned, adjusting the pillows to get more comfortable. Yeah, my hero. The air was getting thin in there. Jackie smiled. Where is McLeod anyway? Downstairs waiting to see how Steve's doing. Yeah, it was crazy. Just about the time he figured it out, Tercel did exactly what he said he would. Literally, at 60 minutes, the phone rang and we got the code. It wasn't Darius, but someone gave it to us. The drugs were wearing off and I was uncomfortably antsy. Come on, let's get out of here, I said, throwing the covers aside. However, as I went to stand, the room spun, I wobbled, and Stuart caught me as Jackie pushed me back into bed. Oh, no, girlfriend, not yet. Doc said you need some observation time. No telling what all was in that syringe. Okay, okay, I said, lying back down. So, Steve's okay? Yeah, still in the ER, but should be out shortly. Like I said, he'll be all right. Won't be running any marathons anytime soon, but doubt it's going to stop him from taking care of you. Jackie winked. There was a tap at the door, followed by a familiar face. Baby girl, Samuel whispered as he came in for a hug. (laughs) So good to see you, Dad. You okay? I gave a nod as he kissed my cheek. All good. Now, I want you to listen to the doctors, and don't try to get back to it too fast, Detective First Grade, he smiled. Thank you, Dad. I I won't. Not wanting to let go of his hand, I said, Anything more about... Uh, We'll talk later, he winked. But rest assured, it's all good. Uh, Speaking of good news, uh, we have more than enough of crime scene photos of all the killings. I forced a smile. However, the bad news, so far we don't have any actual solid evidence that link those photos to him or the murders. (laughs) What? Well, not yet anyway. And theoretically, he air quoted, he could have purchased those photos from any sick bastard, say from the dark web. You are shitting me. I should you not. But what about the recordings? McLeod was like right there. Mm -mm. Well, maybe. And while we haven't finished it, there was more than enough static and interruption in them to complicate matters. He, He basically jammed us. That equipment of his, state of the art. Holy shit. And he stared at his hands. Even with the recordings, he doesn't actually confess too much of anything. Just that they all partied. My expression must have been something because they all stared at me. I know. It's fucked up. A knock at the door distracted us as Captain Nelson entered. How in the hell are you, Norelli? He barked, entering the room like he was late for the party. You okay, girl? Uh, pretty good, Captain. Ready to find this maniac. Nodding acknowledgments to Dad, Stuart, and Jackie, he approached and patted my leg. Yeah, 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 yeah. About that, we've got a statewide APB out covering all modes of transpo, but you know how it is. Patricia, a city this size, and his resources? Yeah. Not promising, but not right now anyway. I could feel heat rise in my chest. How could I have been so in... Whoa, 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 Stuart interrupted. Yeah, stop it, Norelli. Without your instincts, we wouldn't be here knowing who the real killer was. We'll get him. Rather, you'll get him. Because you know as well as I do, he'll screw up somewhere. And you'll be there to bring him down. While I knew he was trying to make me feel better, I wasn't sure I completely bought it. Thanks, Captain. Or wanted to buy it. Captain's right. We're a team. Stu and I bump fists. Okay, now get better and we'll see you in a day or two. He said, patting my leg like a good puppy, then walking away. At the door, he turned back. Just, <laughs> just kidding. Take whatever time you need. And Detective Norelli, 
Yes, sir. You did good. I'm proud of you. We all are. And with that, he was gone. Dad, Stuart, and Jackie looked at one another before Stuart said, Isn't that like the first time he ever... Yep, yep, pretty much. Stuart and Jackie left at the same time a nurse arrived to give me a pill to help me sleep. Now that we were alone, Dad hung out for another 20 minutes, peppering the conversation with details of how a business connection, he actually used air quotes, helped him put Nikki away. Because of a special arrangement, he would only have to serve three soft years, not life. In exchange, the judge and company would not suffer any further complications. From what I recall, they called it the price of doing business. After several hugs and a kiss, he said he and Mom were going out for dinner to celebrate a handsome full-price offer on the house thanks to an anonymous buyer from Palm Springs. As soon as the door shut behind him, the nurse's pill must have kicked in because I was instantly out. Chapter 97 Knock Knock When I awoke, the sky was dark and the halls quiet. Since I was without my phone, a casualty lost in the shuffle, I felt completely alone. Lying there, I watched the twinkling lights of West Hollywood as my mind drifted to my last moments with Dr. Darius Tercell. Not sure if I should call him doctor any longer. Just then the door slowly opened, and a man's hand holding a small bouquet of red tulips slowly extended beyond the door. The flowers hung in midair. Still groggy, I squeaked out, Uh, hello? Next an arm, then a body followed. Hello, Patricia, Darius said with an enormous smile. How are you feeling? My stomach bottomed out and my heart began to race, as evidenced by the beeping monitor overhead. In that instant, I was torn between outright fear and odd attraction. Darius? I love it when you call me by my first name, he said, approaching my bed. Should I scream? Your mind is probably racing with all sorts of questions, isn't it? He placed the flowers in my lap and took my hand. Yes, actually, they smell wonderful. And your hand is so warm. It's so good to see you, he said, taking my hand and kissing it. What are you doing here? Checking on you, and to say how sorry I am for having left you so quickly. But you see, I couldn't stay. He was so close I could smell his cologne. He slowly leaned down and went to kiss my cheek. At the last second, I turned and our lips met. We kissed, gentle at first, then our tongues passionately entangled. Epilogue I awoke instantly, and looking around saw that I was still in my hospital bed. It was actually just before sunset. Another knock at the door startled me again. Disoriented and a bit panicked, I said, Hello? Watching the door open, a young orderly entered, carrying a bunch of flowers and a small package under his arm. Detective Norelli? He asked, confirming my name from a note in his free hand. Uh, yeah. Sorry to bother you, but these were delivered by a man who asked that I deliver them immediately. I'm guessing official police work? Confused, either by the dream or the drugs, I wondered if he was asking or stating. Okay, was he a police officer? Was he in uniform? And what did he look like? Did he give a name? Uh, no, I don't think he was an officer. Well, he he wasn't wearing a uniform. He was kind of tall and fit-looking. Handsome, I guess. And? Oh, um, and what was the last thing he said? A name? Oh, just a first, I'm guessing. He said, tell her it was from, he looked down at the paper, Darius? Suddenly it felt as though my head had been shaken like a glass snow globe, and the snow inside was tiny bits of firm facts mixed with lucid dreams. It took me another minute to shift from dream to reality. Clearly uncomfortable, the young man looked around, then put the flowers in a water pitcher on a nearby stand. 
Handed me the package, she said, I'll see that you get a fresh pitcher of water. I work downstairs in the gift shop. Uh, Have a good night. After the door closed, I sat staring at the package. Is it a bomb? Doesn't feel like a bomb. I pulled the tab open and slowly removed the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, by John Gray. You've got to be kidding me. Opening it, I saw it was actually a different title, and removing the dust jacket found the well-marked book, Hypnoanalysis, by Lewis R. Wahlberg. A chewed-up yellow pencil marked a dog-eared page. I began reading the highlighted section. In some patients, particularly compulsive neurotics, it may be advisable to induce the patient deeply during the first session. Compulsive patients are often impressed with the changes occurring in themselves and not knowing what to expect next cannot marshal their hypnosis the first time, but thereafter, and knowing what to expect can resist. Once in a deep trance, post-hypnotic suggestions may be made that will cause them to enter into a much deeper, manageable state. What? I mumbled, staring at the book, half expecting it to answer. Turning to the front, I found an elegantly handsome thank-you note tucked into the seam. My name was handwritten on the front in fountain pen. My dear Patricia, I hope you enjoy the flowers and this book. The secret powers within have served me well over the years. You must know how much I enjoyed our time together. I am equally sad as it was much, much too short. I trust you learn things about yourself as you are an exceptional patient. So quick to learn. So willing to dive deeply. That spirit of teachableness is hard to come by. I feel certain that in time you will come to see just how much you will have adapted to ideas of which you had no conscious awareness. Be prepared for all sorts of revelations. Speaking of which, if you find yourself needing a good therapist to handle your PTSD, I can make an excellent recommendation. He's a good listener and even makes house calls. In the meantime, I am moving far from the grasp of you and your comrades. Guess that makes me your own personal unsub, doesn't it? I'm sure you will have plenty of other cases which will require your attention. Your captain is bound to be impressed with his star protege. By the way, as a parting gift, I lent a gentle hand in one of your business matters. The one between you, your father, and some persons of ill repute. Let's just say I have friends in odd places, and your friend will no longer be a problem. Your father can retire with a clear conscience, and your family can rest easy, as it seems Nicholas couldn't take the idea of prison and had an extreme case of claustrophobia and hung himself. Tragic, isn't it? Until we speak again, may you find great success as a first-grade detective. You will always be first class in my book. I hope your father enjoys retirement, your daughter enjoys school, and you and Steve have fun together. Sorry about his leg. If you fancy a getaway, be sure to look me up. I'll be the tan, long-haired surfer walking the beaches of Australia and looking for the one true love who got away. All my love, Darius. Letting out a long, cleansing breath, I allowed my emotional mind, the one fighting to conceal a smile, to battle my monkey mind, the one fighting to suppress anger. It would be important for me to find a way to come to terms with knowing innocent people died at the hand of a psychopath. And while that maniac could have taken my life, yet chose not to. He also awakened something in me I may not fully understand for quite some time. After several moments, my body relaxed and my focus drifted away like the day's diminishing light. In that serene moment, I knew I had given it my all. And yet I still found myself hoping for a second chance to find the doctor and to beat him at his own game. (laughs) 
I'm David Temple. Thank you for reading and listening to The Poser. I had so much fun creating Detective Pat Norelli, and I look forward to providing many more page-turning thrillers with her in the lead. Stay tuned for her sequel, The Imposter. In fact, do this for me, would you? Go to my website, davidtemplebooks.com, and drop me a note or sign up for my newsletter. Thanks again for enjoying The Poser. Written and narrated by David Temple. Copyright 2020. 82 Mercer Publishing. Thank you for listening to the audiobook version of my thriller, The Poser, starring rookie detective Pat Norelli. I hope you enjoyed the final chapters of the novel. This does wrap up all four segments for the month and all 98 chapters, free for you. Now, that does put a wrap on that special edition, but I would like to say, if you'd like to see what happens next, please consider picking up your copy of The Imposter, available now in most fine retailers. A quick programming note, please join me this Friday, September 3rd, when my special guest will be the co-writing duo of Andrews Wilson, a.k.a. Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson, the authors of the Sons of Valor series, the Shepherds series, among many, many others. I had the honor of having them on my other podcast, Naked Monday, but given I've launched a new podcast all about thrillers, I thought it only fair to bring them back. Besides, they're not only great writers, but terrific guys who've become friends, and I'm stoked to have them on. Again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed The Poser, and I'll see you next time as we get in the Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.